you, Nikki Harmon, for agreeing to be interviewed for the Book Last podcast about contemporary Chinese literature, your work translating from Chinese to English, and the Paper Republic campaign. So how did you end up translating from Chinese? Well, thank you for inviting me, first of all. Translating is, is currently the, the main passion in my life, uh, what I spend most time on. Uh, I studied Chinese quite a few years ago and there was a, a big gap before I started translating. And then at the end of the 1990s, I really got into translating. As soon as I started translating Chinese literature, I knew this was where I wanted to be. And if I wasn't doing it, I wanted to be talking, blogging or writing about it. And that's what I do on Paper Republic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how, so, yeah, so how did the Paper Republic campaign start and when? And Paper Republic was started by Eric Abrams. Abrahamson in 2007. I first came across it in 2008 and cut a long story short, a small, it, it became the hub for a, uh, a group of uh, translators translating Chinese literature into English, using it as a blog and as a resource. Uh, Eric and I carried on working on it uh, over the years, we're now 2019, a whole uh, group of translators are involved, all based in different countries, but all uh, native English speakers translating from Chinese into English. And we've made it into a great resource for anyone who wants to know about uh, Chinese literature and translation. And what is it? What is it? It's paperrepublic.com? What is the URL? It's paper-republic. Paper-republic.org. O-R-G. Ah, .org. Okay, great. Um, is there now? So, is there greater recognition and curiosity nowadays about writing from a non-English speaking world that is four thousand eight hundred and thirty-four miles away from the UK? <laughs> yes, yeah. The situation has improved a lot since I started. So. Um, I once had to look back to 2003 and count the number of translations published in English in the UK and the US that year. I think it came to three. Uh, Then when Helen Wong and I started doing our yearly roll call, which we put up on Paper Republic, all fiction, poetry, um, translations published from Chinese in a particular year, we started doing that 2012, uh, so 2018 is our last one. That's the roll call that um, I'll be referring to today. And it was well over 40, and that doesn't count special categories like children, youth literature, young adults, and poetry. So the situation has improved hugely, uh, a much greater variety. And when, so when does contemporary Chinese literature begin? Because, of course, we are aware of the ancient, sort of, I mean, huge, extraordinary ancient history and culture and all the influences on, on the West and the world, actually. So when, yes, yeah, so when would you roughly say that contemporary Chinese Well, Well, begins? there are various timelines. Okay. I'm working from the most recent, you could say, the beginning of the 80s after the end of the Cultural Revolution saw a great flourishing, great outburst in new Chinese writing. And most of what is published and most of what you'll see on the 2018 Mm -hmm. roll call that we put on Paper Republic uh, takes 
uh, works which have been written within the last 10 years. And so that's, it is really modern stuff, contemporary stuff, which is being translated and uh, published in the English language. That said, there are um, a couple of classics also came up last year. Um, one was, for instance, Slapping the Table in Amazement, uh, a <laughs> Ming Dynasty one. story collection <laughs> by a writer called Ling Meng Chu. And slightly nearer to our time, Eileen Chang, Zhang Eileen, uh, a book of hers previously untranslated was translated and published last year, Little Reunions, translated by uh, Jane Weijun Pan and Martin Mertz, and she wrote in the 30s and 40s. So, all, although I've said that most work translated now is contemporary work, of course that's not entirely true. Okay. So between, so before, so say between 49, yes, because 49 to 80, then what, in other words, the 50s, 60s, 70s, what was being published? Was it very controlled, if you like, or what? what? Well, I think if I tell you that Chairman Mao, yeah. uh, in his Yenan talks on art and literature, uh, decreed that literature would be at the service of the people, you can see that yes. writers were expected very much to write in the service of the people, which meant in the service of the party. So, um, and then really, propaganda? So not, I mean, entirely, not entirely, but... So how does no, one differentiate between toeing the line and... I don't know. It's very complicated. Yeah. I don't okay. think we should go there. Things yeah, okay. have changed. We okay, that's good. No, <laughs> I mean, some, yeah, some okay. good stuff was written, but it was written under fairly severe political controls, especially during the Cultural Revolution, 1965 to 75. Well, would there be, sort of say, allegorical writing or you know, something like, I mean, this is ancient, centuries old, but Montesquieu's Lettre Persane was a sort of allegorical Mm. He couldn't obviously write at the time about a rather tyrannical king, so it was done under the guise of being else. You know, there were ways of getting around it. It's just interesting how I, I writers think always find ways writers, around. They're inventive and imaginative. Writers so have always found exactly. ways around things. <laughs> On the other hand, sometimes they've had an easier life than indeed. than at others. Yes, indeed. So, so how is though the dark side of socialism exposed in Chinese literature then? dark side of socialism, the dark side of society. Uh, I think Chinese writers range very wide. Most of them are not going to be directly attacking the socialist system because they know that that would mean that their books would have a hard time coming out. Some do. Uh, for instance, uh, one extremely good writer uh, who's not on the 2018 list because his book came out a couple of years before, Chen Si War wrote The Book of Sins, which is a collection of short stories, basically using the metaphor of dysfunctional sexual relationships to point up the corruption, the social and moral corruption of society around him as he sees it. He's still active, he's still writing, but I can't say he has a very easy time of it. He's not the government's best favourite writer. So you get writers like, like that who write um, who write very good stuff. Then there are writers like um, I.E., that's A and then Y.I., who uh, 
have written very bleak stuff about uh, criminals, not exactly crime writing. It's more like psychological thrillers. And there's one of his that will come out next year called Wake Me Up at Nine in the Morning, currently available in Italian Who's in exactly the same time. Uh, one World. One World. So okay. there, are, there are writers who write about um, very difficult and sensitive topics. For example, uh, I mean, we'll come on to women writers in particular later, but Xu Xiaobin, who wrote Crystal Wedding, um, published the year before. That's it, yes. Um, published the, the year before last. Um, has written very bitingly about what it's like to be a woman and to be a woman writer in China and um, sex discrimination, well, male chauvinism, and so on. She goes through the generations and you see through the stories and the, through the generations and the stories of these women. Yes, and it's incredibly bitter and the kind of sexual repression that was more or less universal in China in the 50s, 60s, 70s and during the Cultural Revolution. She, she, she shows mm. how much that affected women and mm. still does affect women. Yeah. So how do writers and publishers circumvent government censorship in China? Um, I suppose short of leaving the country and emigrating. Um, yeah, is it is it different genres? I think, are they I think mask on the, things? I mean, how do they yeah. get around On it? the whole, writers have, and publishers, have an enormous amount of freedom, much more than we Westerners think. However, uh, so they can write about corruption, so long as they don't directly attack any high official by name. Mm -hmm. They can write about... Um, as Chen Shi Wu did in the Book of Sins, you can write about um, sexual corruption, sexual dysfunctional relationships. They can write about sex. Um, they can write about violence, as Ai does. All those books have been published in China. Uh, what I can say is that there's an atmosphere of anxiety. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. There's an atmosphere of anxiety because publishers know that if they publish something that then hits the buffers because the censors suddenly decide that they don't like it, that they, the publishers, the individual workers, editors, uh, business owners will lose their jobs. The writers will also have a pretty hard time. So there's an atmosphere of anxiety because they're second guessing. That tends to lead to self-censorship. However, a very interesting case in point came up very recently. A book called um, Soft Burial, uh, Ruan Mai, by Fang Fang, um, about land reform in the 1950s. Actually published in 2017 in Chinese, and it hasn't been translated. Uh, it was, it won, two things happened almost simultaneously in 2017. One was, it was published, it won an important prize. The second was that it was banned because some, uh, apparently some workers, readers, uh, reading clubs, read it and read it as a strong criticism of the land reform movement. Soft burial refers to landlords and their families being buried alive during appalling things that happened during land reform. It is very hard hitting. 
So it got banned, it won a prize. On the other hand, that book I happen to know, beginning of 2019, is still available and on offer from the publisher, the Chinese publisher, mm -hmm. to any Western publisher who wants to uh, take the risk, if it's a perceived risk, of uh, getting it translated and publishing it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean about an atmosphere of uncertainty. Yeah. You never quite know what's happening. And an awful lot goes through, and especially on internet literature. Internet literature is um, a phenomenon which has really taken off in China and is less subject to controls because internet novels, self-published, they don't have an ISBN. So there's less, although they can be taken down if someone spots it. Uh, on the other hand, many writers have started writing on the internet also they can do incredibly well. On the other hand, they have no editors, so the quality of what they're publishing is a bit of an unknown quantity. So what strengths are drawn by Chinese writers from the richness of their cultural background and national identity? And are the, the books that are made available in the West just translated from standard Chinese, or are there other regional dialects represented? And where i mean also where which are the main sort of literary centers where mm. are standard mm. chinese and which are the main dialects that yeah. are represented all the strong ones well, I, mean, I suppose you'd say the main literary centers are the main cities beijing and shanghai mm -hmm. um on the other hand writers live all over the place almost all writers on the chinese mainland write in uh, standard chinese as do most writers in Taiwan and the Chinese diaspora. Having said that, there's an immense wealth of dialect writing as well. And I've had the privilege of translating um, a couple of writers who use dialect a lot. Cool. Which um, one? So young woman writer Yen Ge mm -hmm. uh, wrote a novel which she called Warm and Jia, Our Family. Uh, translated into English in as the Chili Bean Pace Clan. It was fiendishly difficult in bits. There was an awful lot of dialect, and the funny thing was that Yenge wrote it. It was northern. Uh, sorry, northern yes, she's from Sichuan, Chengdu. Sichuan. Yeah, Sichuan, hot pot country, yeah. as in Chili Bean Paste. So um, she wrote it. She wrote it in dialect, and it did incredibly well in China. She's a very well known. Uh, author has been winning prizes since she was a, a writer in her teens. Um, when I came to translate it, and luckily for me her English is very good, so she was able to look at my translation, she thought a, a lot more about the dialect and she said she realised that she was not just writing in Chengdu dialect, she was actually writing in dialect which was particular to her own small town, Pixian which happens to be where the best chilli bean paste is made. <laughs> and um, she was actually writing about a dynastic family with an old gran. Uh, the son, the put-upon son, who's also profligate and uh, uh, fairly foul-mouthed. And it's a fascinating novel, but I had a lot of trouble with the dialect. Mm -hmm. So we, we had a lot of discussions about it. And there were a lot of things that I didn't pick up. And as, because you're a translator too, you'll know. A lot of um, languages have a richer uh, range of foul language than English does. And there are nuances as well. Uh, under, yes. 
There yeah. Are, there's a sort of yeah, there's a sort of hinterland of meaning. Of yes, it, exactly. Which can refer to religion. Yeah, yeah. It can refer to your great granny's um, the purity of her morals or, or lack yeah. of, and so on. English actually just has a few rude words, and yeah. that may. I'm sure people who come from different areas in England will tell me I'm wrong and other English-speaking countries obviously have different swear words. But I had quite a lot of trouble in finding sufficiently um, colourful obscenities and this led to very interesting conversations between Jenger and me. So that was, uh, that was really interesting. The other writer who writes in dialect and makes a specialism of writing purely about his local area uh, is Jia Ping Hua. And he had a book published in 2000. Which is which area? Oh, sorry, yes. Um, Xi'an. Xi'an, Shanxi. Um, and he's the great king of Xi'an literature and actually speaks dialect, where well, Yenge doesn't. Jia Pinghua mm -hmm. speaks Xi'an dialect uh, almost all the time. He modifies it when he's meeting people like me. But he's basically, he is fascinated by the area, the villages that he came from and the village culture. And because Yanga is more the family, so you get a real yes, sense of the family exactly. and the structure. Where so he's more village, more communal thing. Right? He's he's written novels which. Is he happy dream. No. Yes, he's happy, happy dreams. dreams. So he he has the two Amazon types. That's it. And then the latest one, which is Broken been, Wings, which is coming out with May. Broken Wings, ACA publishing. Right? But he has okay. two different strands to his writing. One is to take a particular topic. Um, which set in the villages or in the towns where the village workers have gone to be migrant workers. And the other is village life in an immense panorama mm -hmm. and the kind of culture clashes between the old and the new, mm -hmm. between what happened during the Cultural Revolution in the villages and ancient enmities and so on. So you've got these enormous wide-ranging uh, panoramas he does have of a books. Focus on I mean, the, the happy dreams, it's the rubbish, wonderful, just with the rubbish pickers, these friends. That, that's the other strand, pickers. yeah. Or Broken Wings, it's this poor it's young woman who is kind of trafficked. Bought. She's trafficked yeah. or bought by this so that's, elderly man. Yeah, totally, yeah. because it's rather extraordinary because it's a place where there are very few women. Okay, yeah. In so, brief, the story of Broken Wings. Cause it's yeah, so this is the other strand of Jia Pinghua's writing, to take a particular... Um, a topic and write something rather short with rather few characters instead of these huge panoramic right. village novels. Okay. So um, Happy Dreams was about um, uh, migrant workers in town. Mm -hmm. Broken Wings is about a trafficked woman because one of the great problems uh, in Chinese villages is that they're dying with all the able-bodied, healthy young workers going off to work in cities and the women in particular have a much better life in the cities and they don't want to come back so that the men who are left behind in the villages and some men are left behind then can't find wives they can't start families and so Jiaopinghua obviously totally condemns the practice of um, bride trafficking and kidnapping but he does understand where those men are coming from but the wonderful thing I think about that novel is that he's totally inhabited the head of the young woman who's trafficked 
and I think that's quite an achievement. I'm not surprised that it can in, he can inhabit the head of a migrant worker who is a, a male of his own age, but to inhabit the head of a young woman, he just gets her voice. In a way, she was much easier for me to translate because dialect or not, I kind of have a feeling in myself as to how a young woman um, thinks and speaks. But I love it when I, I find a writer, uh, as with Yen Ger and her male, middle-aged male protagonist, just get inside the head of someone completely different. Mm. And I think that's really a sign of good writing. And lots of Chinese writers do that. Right. What important lessons in life, really, can we learn from Chinese literature and translation or an angle, let's say, or a special angle or way of approaching um, key... How long is a piece of string? I think you get all the common human themes of love, enmity, um, political shenanigans, political and business shenanigans, corruption of various kinds, adventure, crime. We can come on to talk about crime later. You'll find all of those things, but you find them all in different contexts. So we've got uh, Confessions of a Jade Lord by which is a very interesting book by um, a writer from Xinjiang, far west of China, Asem Alat. I'm probably going to get this wrong. Is he Uyghur or Kazakh? But anyway, he writes in Chinese, translated by Bruce Humes and, and um, Liu Jun. And there you've got society in the far wild west of China, extraordinary tales, a completely different kind of life people who are ethnically different from the Han Chinese. Mm. Then you get something like, oh, this is lovely. Last year, Jackie Chan wrote his memoir, Never Grow Up, um, and uh, Jeremy Tian translated it. Then you get uh, Jin Yong, A Hero Born, which was the first in this great, what we hope is going to be a great series of martial arts novels. Which, which Matt is Fellows all... Press are publishing. Yes. I believe there's another one coming. The there's another one. The first one came out last year. That's it. And or is it The Condor? I can't remember the full. Uh, a Hero Born. A Hero Born. Is yes. The Condor. And then, yes, there is one coming. And there's hero. one out imminently or just out. And because that is martial arts, which is, you know, a great Chinese tradition. Because of he's writing. been a huge influence with all the sort of video games and films. And yes, he was also known as Louis Cha, uh, yeah, Jin well. Yong, and yeah. he died at, uh, in his 90s mm -hmm. last year. Mm -hmm. One of the collections of poetry that, came, poetry that came out last year is actually on tiny flashcards, mm -hmm. the same, basically the same size as your business or name card. And each one has a poem on. And what's it called? And it's called A Hundred Poems of Ten Thousand Elephants. That's Yan Jun. Uh, Yan by Yan Jun, um, who is a very interesting man himself. I don't know him, but the translator, Matt Turner, who translated it with Wang Kai Ying, um, wrote me a very interesting email. And um, I think I'd just like to quote him, because a lot of Chinese poetry, actually China does contemporary, contemporary Chinese writers do poetry very well. And a lot of it is iconoclastic and a lot of it is really a lot of fun. And this book was, um, this collection of poems, 
uh, was written in the persona of a Mr. 10,000 Elephants Law. And Mr. Law is uh, slightly crazy, quote-unquote, slightly Dadaist, and, and each of the poems is, is very short, just appears on one card. Uh, Yen Jun, who wrote it, was a music critic and a rock musician, developing into a poet and an experimental musician along the way, always remaining outside the system. So I think this refers back to one of your previous questions. Yeah. This poem, I think it's lovely. It's called Discourse on Wisdom. The ant was talking with three leaves. I know you. I also know them. Next year, every day will be foolish. And there are many more. Well, 199 more of them in the collection of 100. So I think poetry is, is a fascinating thing to follow. There's also worker poets. There are worker poets. So it's worth, it's worth browsing through the collection of poetry that we've got in the... Um, 2018 okay. list. It's a lot of fun. Um, is writing dystopian fiction and sci-fi a way of avoiding Big Brother's eye of power? Well, possibly, possibly. I mean, this is this is a really interesting question because uh, I happened to um, moderate a discussion at South Bank um, China Festival last September, and it I had two really talented uh, and young Chinese sci-fi writers, Xia Jia and Stanley Chan, whose Chinese name Chen Chiaofan. Um, and they came and they, they had a really interesting talk. So I, in the process, learned a lot more about Chinese sci-fi. And um, I read quite a lot of what um, Chan had written himself about sci-fi. And who should turn up in a New Statesman article today? Uh, a big long article about uh, reimagining China in sci-fi, featuring Stanley Chan, Chen mm. Xiaofan. How, how is it reimagined in brief? I mean, well, how, I think I think one of the things that he says um, is actually very interesting. He said that. Um, it's not so much Chinese sci-fi as a way of avoiding uh, censorship, because it isn't always. Some things mm -hmm. can actually really get up the noses of officialdom. But he said the biggest characteristic of China is the drastic transformation and fracture between different social forms. And in a hundred years, I'm quoting Stanley Chan, Chen Xiaofan here, China experienced the progress that the West took many centuries to complete, from the late Qing dynasty to the Republic of China to the founding of the People's Republic to learning from the Soviet Union to the reform and opening up of the 1980s. Each stage lasted only a couple of decades. There's something very science fictional and fantastic about this drastic social transformation. So he reckons his take on sci-fi is that it's a great way of understanding and letting your imagination roam free. Uh, and what he's written also in the New Statesman article today, which is freely available online, it's not behind a paywall, is very interesting. However, that said, sci-fi, if it's published in book form, may well be um, censored. And there's one, one, there are some very interesting women sci-fi writers, uh, mm -hmm. Xia Jiao, who came to London, 
another called Hao Jingfeng, who wrote a novella called Folding Beijing, which won a Hugo Award. And this is a fascinating novella about an under-society of Beijing. It's folding because these are uh, the trash pickers, these are the workers who come out at night to clear up the trash of the um, workers who, uh, of the rich people who live in Beijing by day. And, and these workers, uh, migrant workers, then have to go home at daybreak and they are folded away into their alternate universe mm -hmm. and they only come out again the next night. And then Beijing is given over to the broad avenues and roaring traffic and luxury restaurants that any visitor to Beijing sees there today. And apparently that is also slightly pushing the boundaries, although um, I don't know any more about it than that, but it's, it's, it's clearly a sensitive topic, yeah. the idea that China is divided into the underdog society and the elite. Because right. um, I know Clark's World and also Head of Zeus, the publisher, they do a lot of sci-fi. I know there's what is it, The Reincarnated Giant, an anthology of 21st century Chinese mm. science fiction. Edited by the Mingwei Song and Song and Theodore Hooters. Yeah. Sounds. Have you read? Mm. I mean, that sounds I've read a couple like of those. a good introduction, actually. Yes, Perhaps. yeah. Would that be a good way in? Absolutely, to yes. Uh, I think anyone who wants to a dip a toe in Chinese sci fi uh, might want to start with short stories, yeah. and they can find them on Clark's World or actually a number of other sci fi mm -hmm. websites have been very good at publishing translations from Chinese stories and that particular anthology so so there as you say on the 2018 roll call list on Paper Republic there are quite a lot of sci-fi mm. stuff the reincarnated giant is um, I was lucky enough to get a copy when um, Stanley Chan and Xia Jia came to London uh, and it's full of fascinating stuff and I don't know, the title, The Three-Body Problem, is rather interesting. Yes, title, what that yes. is, The Three-Body? Uh, <laughs> three well, I that. would be... I'm not a scientist. <laughs> no, okay. Not even not a sci-fi scientist. scientist. <laughs> so I would find it um, yeah, actually quite hard to in, sum up in one sentence. But, um, <laughs> yes, I mean, this is one of the great writers of, of um, Can you Chinese. pronounce the name? Because I will not dare say the name, get it wrong. How do you, how do you Liu Tse Xin. Liu Tse Xin. Mainly translated. Liu um, Ken Liu, yeah. Anyway, so okay. Liu Tse Xin has written um, a whole series of novels, um, The Three-Body Problem, um, which are gradually are coming out with um, Ken Liu and other translators. So once you've had your uh, taster of short stories, yes, go for the really long novels. And it's been extremely well reviewed and a lot of people think very highly of them. So he is uh, one of the great sci-fi writers. Um, and so we were talking about censorship. So on one hand, okay, books were banned, which books were banned in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and then since then, which have been unbanned? Because sometimes books are unbanned, aren't they? Uh, are they rather, can you recommend any books that you think might be of interest? Well, <laughs> they, uh, they I mean... eye of the period, in a way, or, or how things have changed? Uh, I'm not sure 
which book I could recommend that had been had, <laughs> had been unbanned except for one. I mean, one doesn't actually. I'm mm. I'm never quite sure which books have been banned, or maybe a collection of stories has had one story banned, right. uh, and not the others. Uh, the most famous example of the longest banned book was another Jiao Pinhua book, um, Ruined City. Mm-hmm. Uh, Feidu, Ruined City, which was banned for about 17 years and, and nearly ruined the career. It had a serious effect on the career of the what writer. Because about the, the book that was so particularly... Quite a lot of sex in it. Offensive. But, so uh, but on the other hand, having said that, no more sex than would routinely appear mm. nowadays in other Chinese novels. Mm. Um, and I think Depends that is... being unbanned. Then, I think yeah, so, yes. Yeah. I mean, I th- okay. And it was translated two years ago by Howard Goldblatt and it is a wonderful really wonderful book ruined mm-hmm. ruined city uh, I mean I think I'm going to switch now from English to books translated into Chinese mm-hmm. one really interesting thing is that so many hard-hitting English language novels have not been banned in China in particular George Orwell Right. Um, and nineteen eighty nineteen eighty yes, Animal Farm is freely available in China. Really? Nineteen eighty four, I did a quick check before our podcast today, has had between the nineteen nineties and now, has had fourteen different published translations in Chinese. So I think George people love uh, Chinese readers love George Orwell. But the really interesting thing is that he's uh, gone down very well in China and hasn't hasn't been banned and really I can't think of any other western writer who's been seriously banned in China. And what about A Clockwork Orange Burgess because that of course here was... um, Don't know, I don't know, I'm going to leave it to our Chinese native speaker listeners and to tell us. (laughs) Tell us please, comments, yes indeed. Um, I'm told a major anti-corruption campaign is underway in China. How is the abuse of power on ordinary people reflected in the literature? Um, uh, it, it is, yeah, it's a, it's a topic which, which comes up again and again. On the other hand, it may not be the main topic of, uh, of the novel. Uh, it may just be something which is incidentally always there in the background, the fact that you've got to pull the right strings, have the right connections, uh, in art and literature, you've got to know the right people. There's the terrible old casting couch. There's the Me Too movement and so on. So um, there is all of that. Um, but books wholly or mainly about uh, corrupt business practices are not now as popular as they used to be. There was a whole slew of anti-corruption novels, most of which... I don't think any of them really got translated into English. There was one particular one that I loved, but I could never get a publisher interested in. And they've really kind of gone out of fashion now. And what's happened is you've got lots of anti-corruption TV series or TV series with anti-corruption themes. It makes makes for very good TV. And Chinese are very good at huge, huge lengthy TV series of 48 or more episodes and um, so that's where you get you get police dramas and yeah. so on. Now we've touched slightly. Well, we mentioned Yan Yen Ge, but what about women writers? Chinese women writers. Let's hear a bit more about them. And uh, well, there are yes, there there are lots of them, and 
Uh, that said, only about half a dozen of the 40 uh, writers published in English last year from Chinese are women. On the other hand, it's a fairly stellar lineup. Um, some of the male writers are not particularly well known. All the female writers are extremely good and well known. The young um, woman writer, Sheng Ke Yi, Wild Fruit. Then we've got mm-hmm. um, Eileen Chang, I mentioned before, Zhang Eileen. A wonderful writer called Shu Zijian. Penguin published her uh, Goodnight Rose, translated by Poppy Tolland. And San Xue, another highly thought of writer, Love in the New Millennium. And and so on. But it, it is, I know, because this time last year I was invited to go to China, to Ningbo University, to do um, a, a lecture to celebrate International Women's Day. And that led me to look at just how many Chinese women writers are translated. And they do get a raw deal. They are not translated as much. So we try our best at Paper Republic uh, if we're commissioning short stories to get a good, as many women writers in there as we can. Okay. Um, now, the internet, how free to use... You, you mentioned internet writing is popular and growing, so how, but how free to use is the internet in China? Because here in the West we tend to hear that the internet's mm. policed and people are shut down, and so it well, is actually much freer than... Well, both of those are belief. true, yes, but Chinese uh, internet is huge. Right. And so, uh, and Chinese netizens have wonderful ways of discussing things that they want to discuss without the censors picking up on it. I mean, you think the number of people, Chinese people who are on Baidu or WeChat or Weibo or any of these uh, platforms yeah. all day, every day, millions, as many as a billion and and. I mean, the numbers are absolutely vast. And there are some, I mean, for instance, just the discussion of the Me Too movement. The Chinese government didn't particularly take to this. And so any kind of hashtag, M-E-T-O-O, was immediately pulled. So Chinese netizens invented a a wonderful um, homonym, Me Too, Me Too, Rice Rabbit. Me too. So they have the character for rice, me, and the character for two, rabbit. And they make it into a hashtag. <laughs> Chinese netizens are endlessly and wonderfully and they, inventive. Senses, they didn't kind of tweet. Not so far. They may do as of today or tomorrow, but uh, no, I mean, well. the, the, uh, the Chinese, the thing is that you can't use Google in China unless you have a VPN, but they have Baidu, which fun- function, functions in exactly the same way mm-hmm. and has pretty much, that offers the same. Um, and then they don't do WhatsApp or, or uh, Facebook or Twitter, yeah, yeah. but they're alternatives. Yeah, yeah, uh, so Chinese writers, readers, uh, there are some wonderful literary platforms in mm-hmm. China. Dandu and others and um, you know it's a thriving internet community and as I said writers especially young writers who want to get published they can self-publish on the internet and if they do it um, if they do it cleverly they can get millions of readers and the numbers are astonishing and they do it rather like Charles 
the kids did, you know, in in uh, in installments yeah. every day. Right. There is actually Amazon well, China, but there uh, and it is Amazon.com.cn. It's also called um, Joyo, J O Y O. Yes, I mean the book reading, the book reading public, mm. the book buying public is immense. Mm. Uh, but it's pretty much like in this country. If you get on the train and say to your fellow passenger sitting next to you, "Oh, what's the latest novel that you've read?" You'll either get a blank look or, actually, I don't really read novels. But and the same thing happens in China. I'm not saying that there's a greater proportion of uh, book reading public it's probably about the same proportion but there are readers just like here there are readers so i mean so what are would you say are the unique aspects of contemporary chinese literature which are very different to anything that we get here in the well i think the genre are different and i right so as in yeah uh as we talked about sci-fi and martial arts on the other hand um, what about autobiography and memoir, for example? Yes, that, autobiography. You, you get historical narratives. I mean, how? Yes, yes, to, to all of those. Of, I mean, autobiography yeah. and memoir comes up against, if you think about it, some fairly sensitive political yes, problems indeed. because anyone writing their autobiography is likely to be fifty or. 60 years old or even a bit older so something so the period they're talking about includes land reform cultural revolution and so on where if they were from an intellectual or even uh, just an educated family they were likely to have suffered and so how they write about those Mm -hmm. events um, can mean that they're rather constrained or they write a novel instead. Or they write a novel they instead, and even then, yes, they. they um, uh, however, one that came out last year, which is a, a graphic, uh, a graphic autobiography, oh. if I can call it that. A it's not a graphic novel, no- not a graphic novel, <laughs> but a graphic autobiography, and that's okay. on our two thousand eighteen list. List. It's our story, by uh, Rao Ping Ru. And uh, still alive in his 90s, lives in Shanghai. And when his wife of, of many, many years died, he was so grief stricken that he taught himself to paint. And he wrote a graphic autobiography, which is like a graphic novel, but every page has his paintings on it. Um, it's called Our Story. It went down incredibly well in China. Uh, it's come out in English, French and a number of other languages. The only problem is that he spent 17 years doing reform through education, which is basically being in a kind of, not as bad as a labour camp, but he was taken away from his family for 17 years. He hardly writes about that in our story. And uh, the English language publishers did actually think about putting a few blank pages in to illustrate the blank in his... They didn't. They didn't because... Uh, Rao Ping Ru's family is still alive and they simply followed what he had done which was to write very briefly about the period when he was taken away from his family and had to do reform through education Um, what other so love stories I haven't really come across any literary love stories that not too many of them I think sex and love in China tends to be fairly tragic uh, in novels that is um crime we touched briefly on crime the crime genre really hasn't uh, 
there have been one or two exceptions, but That's it isn't. Right, it think? is not the big genre in China that it's it is huge, in the yeah. West. Yeah. It's absolutely enormous. I mean, I'm addicted to translated crime. <laughs> but, um, there is one crime novel on last year's roll call list, um, and his name is, where are we? Uh, Zhou Hao uh, Hui, Death Notice, published by Doubleday and Head of Seuss. Very reputable publishers. I haven't actually read it. It's called Death Notice, translated by Zach Halusa. Um, maybe it will be followed by many more written in Chinese and many more translated. Mm. On the other hand, the writer Ai, uh, who I mentioned, writes about violence and was a police officer himself. But I wouldn't call his books specifically crime novels, although... So uh, having, psychological thrillers, though. He's, a, he's an ex-cop. Yes. So you and they're full of inside uh, the head of. Yeah. Ah, right. So it's they're they're full of psychopaths who are doing terrible things to each other. Right, um, a perfect sense. crime is a, a long novella which um, One World uh, brought out, translated by Anna Homewood, and that was uh, a couple of years ago, <laughs> and I thought that was great. And next year's Wake Me Up at Nine in the Morning, which will come out next year or the year after, is is longer and and it is a psychological thrillers. It, it and, and it's literary fiction. I don't think you could call it genre fiction. Okay. Um, yes, and so to, well, I suppose slightly on the autobiographical or to what extent personal goes into fiction. Because um, it's often said that having had trauma in childhood is an excellent preparation for the creative writer. To what extent would you say this is reflected in contemporary Chinese literature? Or how did it come out? Uh, well, immediately after the Cultural Revolution, you had a whole slew of, of uh, novels, autobiographical as well, uh, but fiction, which um, talked... which which really took as its theme uh, the misery and pain suffered by writers and other people during the Cultural Revolution. Mm. Um, I mean, writers always take their own personal experiences yes. as... as yeah. uh, uh, on the other hand, sometimes they, they don't. They write about completely different things as well. Mm. Um, I think after that taking the Cultural Revolution as and the miseries suffered by educated folk. After that, that period of, of a few years, there, there haven't been so many novels which uh, take the misery of childhood as, ACA, as the springboard. ACA Publishing, they're bringing out Empires of Dust, is it Jiang Zilong? And it's about, I don't, excuse my pronunciation, Gyorgyadian, a tiny hamlet situated on salty ground in the rural northeast where nothing grows. Caught up in the maelstrom of communist China's rocky beginnings, the villagers have to forge a path and somehow survive through the turbulence. And it focuses around a coffin maker. <laughs> so that sounds, that sort of sounds uh, traumatic or survival yes, community. But what do you know about that book? How do we... Translator, I mean, Empires of Dust. Yeah, Jiang Zilong, Empires of Dust, translated by Christopher Payne and Olivia Milburn. Yeah. Um, I haven't read it. Um, it does talk, it's one of an, a number of novels that talks about vi uh, villages uh, during the Cultural Revolution, after, before, 
and there are some fantastic novels written. By, but would you say that the author, Jiang Tselung, is writing, taking his own personal childhood experiences as a springboard for that? I don't know. I mean, I, th I think this sounds absolutely fascinating. And Christopher compared it to Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath and uh, Pearl Buck's The Good Earth. Um, you know, and, he, and, and it does sound very fascinating. Uh, Mo Yen, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, you could say takes his own personal experiences um, as, as the basis for many of his novels. Uh, and some of them make very grim reading. Um, because are they, I mean, are they, the writers, are they conscious of their readership as they write? Do they feel the need to justify a particular moral scheme within which they operate? Or is it something they just take for granted and they just sort of... Well, I, I think, I, I mean, um, serving the people did involve, um, what was the words you used, uh, taking, uh, showing a moral compass to the reader. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Chinese writing, all, all, for the whole of the 20th century, uh, Chinese fiction had authors who were particularly keen to point a moral compass, Lu Xun, starting with the great writer Lu Xun, writing about how um, criticising his own society in his fiction as well as in his essays. So this was a long tradition before Mao told writers that they had to serve mm -hmm. the people and provide a moral compass for them. But um, so they believe they have a moral responsibility. Basically. But that's all finished. Absolutely. That's all that's over. All I that's mean, that's all finished with yeah. whatever <laughs> Xi Jinping would like. Uh, actually, <laughs> most authors from the end of the Cultural Revolution onwards are not going to feel that they've got a moral duty to yeah. to uh, write uplifting stuff. And and a lot of writers will make a point of doing the exact opposite, either writing very much from a very personal point of view, and um, or or writing in a very iconoclastic and writing very bleak literature, which is uh, extremely negative. Um, and whatever the authorities, and that includes the Writers' Association, say about it, they carry on doing it because that's the kind of writing that they want to write. So, uh, so therefore, the sexual interest in fiction, is it to make a point? Is it to sell more books? I mean, do they also, are they happy? You, you said earlier that, that love, it, love is generally rather bleak. I mean, are there ever <laughs> any happy sexual relationships? And, and, not and, not and, a lot, and, as far and, as I can tell. Unions <laughs> in Chinese literature? No. Okay. So, oh, no, yeah. no, there must be some. It's just that perhaps <laughs> the novels I've translated tend, to, yes, uh, tend <laughs> to have unhappy em not, endings not, to not the sexual relationships. Yeah. Yes, and I, I mean, you have women writers like um, uh, Xu Xiaobin, I mentioned Crystal Wedding, who mm. writes specifically about what it's like living in a very male chauvinist society. Mm. Um, and then you've got other women writers like Yen Gerling, who write adventure stories and actually write very little about um, love relationships that end badly. Mm. Uh, and then Yen Ge, the young woman writer who writes, um, who writes from the protagonist of the male and in a rather cynical, some readers would say, um, viewpoint. But happy love stories? Hmm. Um, many writers consider their work to be a way of dealing with the mad, bad world, a way of imposing order on the chaos of living. 
to what extent does this apply or not um, to the to contemporary Chinese writers? Well, as I said, I don't think a lot of Chinese writers would go out to write an avowedly didactic yeah. novel no. anymore mm -hmm. for reasons they're thankfully spared the duty mm -hmm. to do that, so they don't yeah. do it. On the other hand, imposing their own personal worldview, yes, yeah. I, I suppose that that they do because all writers do that that's why you write a story Where because you want to give your own viewpoint I mean there are writers who like Yen Lian mm -hmm. Yen Lian Ke and Yu Hua who push the boundaries as far as they can in writing about uh, in criticizing the politics of right. the uh, society that they see around them mm -hmm. um, the translators award a society of uh, authors Annual, they do these wonderful all the translation awards. Tilted Axis, they got uh, the the a prize for Janet Hong and her editor Ethan Nosovsky for the translation of the Impossible Fairy Tale by Han Yuju. You excuse my Korean. Friends. Korean. So they're Korean. Yes. So how much, how much interaction is there between Korean, Chinese? I mean, all the other sort of neighbouring countries. How much? Because is uh, Korea well, in China, China uh, in Korea? Any, I think yes. Cross, I, I mean, my crossover. I, do you get? I, I, I can't give you any facts and figures, but my impression, so impression is that a lot of Chinese writers will be translated into Korean, Japanese, right. uh, uh, Vietnamese as well, all, because yeah, there's an appetite, yeah. and there's also an appetite for fiction mm -hmm. going the other way. I mean, on the whole, and not coming into China, and probably we are, of course, completely unaware of this in the West. But so and a lot of it going in. So yes, there's a good appetite. There's an enormous appetite, and has been ever since the 1980s right. for anything that can be translated from any language, from from the West, from Latin America, from mm -hmm. America. American fiction is hugely popular in Chinese translation. Um, British Spanish fiction, way. then from Spanish, from Italian, and as I say, it's only anecdotal. But I feel that. Uh, well, of course, Murakami and other Japanese writers and yes. Korean fiction. I mean, Chinese writers and readers are astonishingly well-read. Uh, well mm -hmm. And I'm constantly shamed mm -hmm. by uh, writers that I haven't read that, that they have. You know, mm -hmm. Kafka is a big favourite, Carver, mm -hmm. and also, so on. I mean, so Vietnamese, I must admit, here there, is, there are publishers here, who, there is a publisher I know who does publish Vietnamese, but that's quite a... Underrepresented. So, what books are you translating at the moment that we can look forward to reading? Um, I'm I'm translating another Jia Pinghua novel, one of his village panorama mm -hmm. strand. One of those, but that won't come out till next year. Mm -hmm. Amazon Crossing is going right. to, and I'm actually this is uh, uh, quite interesting. It's a very long novel, and so Amazon Crossing agreed that. I could co-translate it with Dylan King. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a very interesting exercise mm -hmm. for both of us. It's coming out with One World, you said? Oh, uh, waking no. up at nine waking in the morning, the, the IE. So mm. that, I mean, because yes, of course, murder, the ultimate crime, blows away law and order and religion and reveals how people behave under stress. I guess that perhaps waking up at nine in the morning is an element of that in there. But what, 
I mean, what are the leading... You translated that. For I translated that, but you? I've already yeah. finished it, but it okay. won't come out until but, so, probably 2020. 2020, okay. But Western publishers are beginning to realise just what is out there. Um, and I don't think they look for mm. specific... What, so what do you it. think, what does the future hold, do you think, for Chinese literature and translation? Is there going to be more of it? Or, I mean, more of it, definitely. Of I it. mean, let's hope right. it's going to go on increasing exponentially. If you think 2003, three novels, 40, 2018, and that's not counting mm-hmm. um, poetry and YA and mm-hmm. children's books. So let's hope it, and, and I think it's vitally important to translate more of these excellent women writers. And I also really strongly feel that promoting Chinese novels once they're translated is really, really important. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think we all, given that most Chinese writers don't speak fluent English, mm-hmm. it's really important for translators, agents, and publishers to think creatively mm-hmm. about how we can tell Western readers what is out there because you can't blame people for not buying stuff if they don't know it's there. Obviously, I'm not trying to tell publishers how to do their business. They do it extremely well. Well, thank you very much, Nikki.